Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, February 6, 2019. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me. And when I say it's Wednesday, it's true. It's technically Wednesday, but practically speaking, it is late Tuesday. I just got out of studio here in New York, CBS Sports Network. At the moment, it's 12.50 a.m. Eastern. So we're doing an Ion College Basketball Podcast after dark following a busy Tuesday night in the sport. And would you believe it if I told you Michigan State's now on a three-game losing streak? It's true. Two Sundays ago, Michigan State had a 13-game winning streak. Spartans were 18-2 and overall, 9-0 and in the Big Ten, and being discussed as somebody who should be in the conversation with Duke, Gonzaga, Tennessee, and anybody else at the top of the sport. Then they lost at Purdue. And no big deal. Purdue's good. Losing on the road to Purdue was not alarming because actually at tip-off, Purdue, although unranked at tip-off, was actually favored at tip-off. But then they backed that loss with Saturday's home loss to an Indiana team that was on a seven-game losing streak. That's not great. And then on Tuesday night, they lose 79-74 at Illinois. This is an Illinois team that's 8-15, and so that's another bad loss for the Spartans. Norlander makes sense of it. How has Michigan State gone from 18 and 2 to 18 and 5 in a span of 10 days. It's lost three straight games, Parrish. That's a good answer. That's an accurate answer. I will accept it. I I am happy that you will cuz it is accurate. This is weird, man. Michigan State has gone from a team that you know, I spoke to I happened to speak to a few Big 10 coaches in mid-January and all of them said that Michigan State was the best team in the conference. I'll admit one of those coaches happened to be affiliated with Michigan State, but nonetheless, there were there were others not, and they've gone from that to I think a one seed is probably off the table completely. Even if maybe if they ran the table, Parish, they might be able to get a one. That's possible, but that that's unlikely at this point. And now their grips on a two are really slipping here because the home loss to Indiana. We wait and see now. For Indiana, we, t- we covered its uh, bizarre evolving resume, uh, but we don't know if that's going to be a tournament team and that's going to be a home loss. And then dropping to Illinois, uh, for Brad Underwood in the midst of what is surely extremely frustrating, potentially the most frustrating season of his coaching career, last season's Illinois team wasn't as bad as this season. He gets this kind of win, and it's almost like it's a feed for just until next season it gets them through. We beat Michigan State on our home floor, so congrats to the Illini for getting a good win there. But with Michigan State, it is bizarre. I do think, no, Joshua Langford does have an impact. I understand that there was plenty of games without him where Michigan State looked good. But you saw on Tuesday night here with Nick Ward not being productive, Kyle Arns not doing what he needed to do, at least what they're going to ask of him, and then Cassius Winston weirdly having a bad game. I would not have expected that from him in that spot. He had nine turnovers, only hit one of five uh, three-point attempts he took. He's, you know, he is a good three-point shooter. He's turned into one of the better ones in college basketball. And, um, I mean, it was it was weird how out of sorts they were, and then defensively Michigan State wasn't where it needed to be. So it's been a little bit uh, funky, frankly, to see MSU turn into this. Now it gets a home game against Minnesota to get right on Saturday, but then it's going to turn around um, in a week from today. It'll have a game at Wisconsin, so we'll see where it goes from here. But I was way in on Michigan State being like a top-five team in college basketball, 
didn't foresee really any circumstance parish in which this team would lose three straight, and yet here it has. It's done just that, and now the Big Ten, which rates as the strongest team in college basketball, suddenly has drama because Michigan and Purdue now sit atop the league standings with just two losses, and then Michigan is tied in the loss column with Wisconsin, and Maryland is the other team that is within shouting distance. I think the easy thing to do is point to the loss of Josh Langford and say, hey, this this, this is what happens when you lose – you know, somebody who was averaging 15 points per game, somebody who was clearly one of your best stories. You know, you sort of um, explain away uh, Michigan State's recent troubles uh, the same way you would explain away Kansas's recent troubles. They were triggered, uh, you know, undeniably by the loss of Yudoka Azabuki. But here's the difference. You know, Kansas has been, like, playing 500 basketball since it lost Doak. They've never been good with him they have some good wins with I mean they've never been good without him they've got some good wins without him but they've been wildly inconsistent up and down without him uh, Michigan State when it lost Josh Langford you know the first game they played without him was January 2nd it was against Northwestern they went at 81 55 then they play Ohio State back when Ohio State was ranked in the top 15 they went at 86 77 then they played Purdue a Purdue team that's now in the top 25, beat them 77-59. Then they go to Penn State, win 71-56. Go to Nebraska, when Nebraska was healthy, uh, beat Nebraska 70-64. Then they get Maryland at home, beat them 69-45, another double-digit win. Then they get Iowa at Iowa. That's an Iowa team that's good. Uh, they go and beat them by 15 points on the road. They started 7-0 and without Josh Langford. So I don't think it's as simple as, they lost a 15-point per, uh, per game score. What do you want them to do? Because they they beat, at least at the time when the game was played, one, two, three top 20 teams without Josh Langford before they went on this three-game losing streak without Josh Langford. So I do think it's a little more difficult to, to pinpoint Michigan State's problems than it is some other teams that uh, their problems are clearly tied to to, to injuries that they've endured. Yeah, I do. I, Parrish, I agree to a certain extent, but I also don't love Michigan State's chances in March to win six games in a row without Lankford. And I believed in that even before they hit the slide and Lankford was officially ruled out for the season with that uh, mysterious uh, foot injury. So we wait and see on that. By the way, in the, in the, in the Big Ten on Tuesday night, Michigan did get a win at Rutgers, which is – you know, no automatic thing. So that Michigan State's loss combined with Michigan's win also created room for separation within the league on Tuesday night. Um, the Michigan State loss at Illinois was not the only upset on Tuesday night. There was another big one. It happened in the Big East. We're going to get into that in a moment. But first, check this out. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do. Like me, taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. 
Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. So the other big upset of the night, St. John's won at Marquette. Final score, St. John's 70, Marquette 69. Marcus Howard missed the potential game winner at the buzzer. And when I say missed it, he didn't, you know, it wasn't close. It was an air ball that he did not get a good look on. Uh, St. John's, so now they own a regular season sweep of Marquette. That's going to help him on Selection Sunday. Chris Mullen seems to have this thing back on track. You believe in the Johnnies again or – Eh, they just won a one-point game on the road. Sometimes you get lucky. Hey, no. More than that, getting a win like this after Marquette surged, and it looked like Marquette was just going to rip this thing right from uh, right from St. John's hands. But St. Pons made a, a nice drive to the hoop, got the what would prove to be the winning bucket. Uh, bizarrely enough, uh, you know, St. John's, first of all, they, they win two out of three on the road. They beat Creighton, drop against Duke. And then they beat Marquette. Duke, by the way, blew out Boston College on Tuesday night. That's two straight games where Duke was weirdly in a game through like the first half. Like it trailed Boston College and then won by 25 points. <laughs> like it did the exact same thing at St. John's. Maybe a weird habit developing. But St. John's rebounds from that game, beats Marquette here. It now is eight and four in quad one and quad two games. Marquette's two losses over the past, like, 20 games have both come to St. John's. Weird. Got an established third team for sure now in in the Big East. St. John's is clearly tracking toward the NCAA tournament. This this run here was massive toward its NCAA tournament profile after dropping that home game against Georgetown. Ponce goes for 28 in this one. Um, For Marquette, an opportunity lost and a little bit of the shine off of its forthcoming game against Villanova, which takes on a little bit more urgency. And other thought I had here was St. John's, I think, collectively has more talent than Marquette. And at the start of the season, um, there was more belief that St. John's would, among some people, I won't say all, that St. John's would be the better team versus Marquette. Um, Marquette... Not ironically, but just unfortunately, it actually started to it climbed into the top 30 of Ken Palm. It had been trying and trying and trying. It does it, and then it drops a home game to St. John's, which hasn't been very metrics-friendly either in this case. But uh, if you're a Marquette fan, you take your second loss just since November 21st. Um, not too much to be uh, frustrated about. Just hope that you can you know, get a good win over Villanova. Otherwise, absent of that... The Big East is going to be a wrap because Marquette now has two league losses. Villanova is still undefeated, and then everyone else is trailing behind. Creighton, St. John's, Georgetown all have five losses. So um, Marquette beating Villanova, we'll obviously preview that game on the next podcast, is critical to uh, the Golden Eagles' chances of trying to finish the top of the league standings. On the Big East in general, I'm I'm almost prepared to just go ahead and give it to Villanova. You know, you look at their schedule. Uh, I think they might be an underdog one more time in this regular season. They obviously haven't lost a league game yet, so um, it'd take them uh, at least three losses. Even if Marquette won out, it would take them at least three losses to not win at least a share of the Big East title. I don't think Villanova is going to have three league losses. I'm not sure they're going to have two. Um, I think Villanova is probably about to win a Big East title for the fifth time uh, in six years. As it relates to this particular game, um, you know, Marcus Howard wasn't good. Again, second time against St. John's. He has now played two games 
against St. John's. Both were losses. He was 2 of 15 from the field in the first one, 5 of 17 in the second one. Do the math on that. That's 7 of 32 in two games. Justin Simon has really done a job on him in both of those uh, matchups. And so now Marquette will drop immediately out of the top 10 of the top 25 and one. But you mentioned how, um, you know, they haven't been a metrics darling. And it's something that I have noticed. You know, I am a slave to the resume, mostly. Like, I don't really care. I'm aware of where you are in the net. I'm aware of where you are in Kimpom. But if your resume says you ought to be a certain thing, I am willing to disregard Kimpom for the most part and just say, hey, you know, if you're counting quality wins, whether it's top 25 wins, top 50 wins, top 100 losses, quality losses as well, which is something I think is important, this is about where Marquette should be. And so I thought Marquette should be in the top 10, but they've never been close to the top 10 at Ken Palm. They entered the St. John's game at 26. Afterward, they dropped to 28. So they, they are a team that has one of the bigger discrepancies between their AP poll ranking, coaches poll ranking, and actual Ken Palm rating. And uh, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying they might not be as good as the number uh, beside their name in the AP poll uh, right now. That said, they were 16-2. and two. They're still... 16-2 and two in their past 18 games. And in that stretch, they've got a win over a Kansas State team that's leading the Big 12 right now. They've got a win over Buffalo, which is not only a likely NCAA tournament team, but a possible at-large team if they need to be that. Um, you know, they added a win over Butler. They got a win over Wisconsin. Like, there's some – they got a win over Louisville. Um so there's some that just won at Virginia Tech mm -hmm. on Monday night. So there are some great wins on that resume, but it is kind of weird. If I told you that Marquette would only have two losses since November 21st against a schedule that included Louisville, Kansas State, Wisconsin, Buffalo, you wouldn't assume that both losses are to St. John's, but that's where we're at. It is. It's one of those weird things, and I don't know if I'm predicting this is going to happen, but it'll be a I root for weird resume circumstances and going into Selection Sunday because it just creates more interesting things to talk about and speculate about. Like, what if Marquette only loses the rest of the way? Like, it gets swept by Villanova, beats everyone else in the regular season, and then be it in the semifinals or the finals of the Big East tournament. Like, it's only other losses to either Villanova or St. John's. It's going to be weird to evaluate the team if their only non-cons were to Indiana and Kansas – and then they have another five losses just to St. John's and Villanova. Um, I don't know, you know, obviously where they would be seated in that kind of a situation. And I think we're going to push off our seed prediction one more episode here. One, because it's freaking late. And two, CBS is doing the top 16 reveal on Saturday. That might be a fun little teaser for stuff. So we'll, we'll push that off for one more episode. Plus, I don't think Parrish even remotely remembered that it was supposed to be happening on this episode. Didn't prepare for it. So we're going to push it back. But anyway, those are my thoughts on Marquette. Um, you know, I mentioned quality losses. You note that they only have non-league losses to Indiana, and that's at Indiana, neutral court to Kansas. Because St. John's has jumped into the top 50 at Ken Palm, um, you know, Marquette's resume is strong. They have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine top 100 Ken Palm wins and zero sub-50 losses. So the resume is still, I think, if you base it on, quality wins and quality losses and in, in, in a 
no bad losses really there anywhere, except for obviously a home loss to St. John's, but it's still a loss to a top 50 Kimpom team. Um, the resume is really strong, much better than their actual computer rankings. And, um, you know, we mentioned that the CBS is doing the top 16 seeds on Saturday. I still think, and I don't have to sit down and really look at it, but I still think there's a chance Marquette could be, you know, one of the top four seeds in one of the regions. Um, this loss to St. John's, less than ideal, um, but um, not a resume killer in, in any way. You'd rather be 20-3 and three than 19-4 and four with a home loss to St. John's, but still, uh, big picture, their resume is better than than, than most teams in the, in the country. Uh, Kansas. Lost at Kansas State on Tuesday night. Final score was 74-67. So the Jayhawks are 5-5 five and five since losing Yudoka Azabuki for the season. They've lost four of their past six games. They're now 6-4 and four in the Big 12. Two games back of Kansas State and Baylor in the loss column. According to Ken Palm, Iowa State is now projected to win the uh, Big 12 outright and snap KU's string of 14 consecutive Big 12 titles. Norlander, I know you have consistently said, and I have also consistently said, we will not pick Kansas to not win the Big 12 until we get to a place where you just can't continue to pick Kansas to win at least a share of the Big 12. Have we got there yet? Did this game against Kansas State in the octagon of doom, did it push you even a little bit in that direction? Nope. I'll go down with that ship. I have no new updates to provide. I am refusing to get on. Listen, once it happens, then I'll do it. But you're, I'm still not convinced. Weird, cosmic things happen with Kansas. And Kansas fans, between the DeSouza stuff and Noah Zabuki, this is like the lost season. They'll accept that the streak ends, but uh, it'll come with their own asterisks of their own designs, I think. And as you've noted, I think like in the past five straight podcasts, and it's worth noting on just about every podcast, just how important Azabuki is. Team's just so very different. GP, to me, Kansas State, Ema, every man a Wildcat. They're the story here because, remember, made the Elite Eights last season, projected to be a top-20 team coming into this season, didn't have uh, Dean Wade. He's back in the lineup, and it's been an, it's been an, uh, not a bizarro Yudoka Azubuki situation. It's, been, it's just been the opposite, I guess, which I guess also technically is bizarro. Anyway, roll with me. They are 17-5 and overall, 7-2 and in the league. At one point, as we noted about five, six episodes ago, you know, they're 10-4, and 0-2, oh and, and it just looked a little bit shaky there. But Wade coming back now, this is a top-five team in uh, defensive efficiency overall. Cartier Giara had that uh, breakaway dunk, a windmill in the final minute, which was just the perfect punctuation for that home crowd, getting the win over the hated Jayhawks and staying atop the Big 12. A huge night in Manhattan. This was the most anticipated game going into the evening, and the way that Kansas State was able to rally defensively was extremely impressive. Uh, Kansas remains just brutal. They're 1-6 on the road. Uh, such a different team. It didn't look anything like the team that handled Texas Tech easily in Allen Fieldhouse just a couple nights before that. So here we go. K-State uh, chilling temporarily. Barely's got to play again, but alone atop the Big 12. 
Do you think Kansas can win at least a share of the Big 12 if they can't win on the road? Like, how many road wins do you need to get a share of the Big 12 title? It's a totally valid question, Parrish. And if the answer is, like, you need four, then they're not going to do it. They're not going to win three more times on the road, I don't believe. And that probably won't be enough, even if they hold serve at home. We'll just see how, like, you know, Baylor does not have what Scott Drew described to me as their best player. He, Kristen Clark's gone for the year. Like, is that going to catch up to them? Is K-State, you know, have... Uh, I'm not a big believer in like peaking too or anything like that, but are like are they hitting a groove right now with Wade? Might they regress just a little bit? Um, and then Texas and Te- Texas Tech, I think, are the two other teams that rate best uh, right now in the Big Twelve. I don't know. Um, Iowa State is the one that I haven't mentioned there, uh, as you mentioned, the the, the most well positioned, and that's really the team that Kansas is going to be chasing overall. But the the road woes are are so very real, and I saw Pat Forty point out on Twitter this evening. That Kansas, amid all these, you know, fourteen to run, has never been six and four through ten league games. There's been some seven and threes and all that, but they actually haven't been this far back in the standings. So that's why um, we are more than chatter. It's it's a full blown, audible conversation about uh, a new uh, a new throne grabber inside the Big Twelve. Let me touch on some of the things you just pointed out. Like, is Baylor going to come back to earth a little bit? I, I hope not, because I think it's an amazing story. And I actually like enjoy when Baylor does well because of, and they really don't exist that much anymore. But early in his career, all of the Scott Drew skeptics and Scott Drew haters, like they've watched this man turn into one of the more consistent winners in college basketball. And for him to lose his best player, and then on February 6th, um, 2019, be tied in the loss column at the top of the Big 12 standings, have a better record in the league than. Bill sells Kansas Jayhawks. Like, I just like that story. So I don't want them to come back to earth. But I do think they probably will. Like, they just can't. I, I, I don't want to say they can't continue to operate at this level, but they are really operating at a high level. I'll, I'll be slightly surprised if they continue to operate at this level. I think in this league we've seen already, in most years, but especially this year, um, Almost everybody has a good little stretch, and almost everybody has a bad little stretch, and I would assume Baylor's still got at least one more bad little stretch uh, uh, in them. Um, Kansas State, you know, you mentioned that, you know, they got Dean Wade back, and, you know, they're playing really well right now, but I don't think this is a, like, you look around the country at other teams that are playing well, and some of it's just like, they got hot, they're playing well now, perhaps their winning streak is schedule-induced. I don't think this is a thing of Kansas State getting hot or just playing well. I think this is who Kansas State is with Dean Wade. You know, they're 13-3 and now without, with him in the lineup. He missed um, a stretch there where they took a couple of losses. And so if you look at the three losses without, I mean, with Dean Wade in the lineup, two of them are just bizarre, like 47-46 at Tulsa. Like, that shouldn't happen, but, you know, any game played in the 40s is just bizarre, unless Virginia's involved, I guess. And and that's old school Virginia, not so much this Virginia. And then the, the loss to Texas A&M in the SEC Big 12 Challenge. You and I uh, talked about this before. I can't really make sense of it other than they were stepping out of Big 12 play. They were playing a terrible Texas A&M team. You know, they weren't focused, and, they, you know, suddenly they get behind, and then you just can't ever get it right. It's only a 40-minute game. But, you know, with Dean Wade in the lineup, they've they've beaten Iowa State on the road, the team that's now projected to win an outright Big 12 title. Uh, they've beaten Oklahoma on the road. They've beaten Texas Tech and TCU at home. And then on Tuesday night, they uh, beat Kansas. And I know this seems crazy to say, 
especially about Kansas. But there was never really a time in that game where I didn't think Kansas State was going to win the game. Like even when Kansas would, you know, get a turnover and get out in transition and, um, oh, well, they've cut the lead to two. I just felt like Kansas State was always going to figure out how to win that game. Then in the final minute, they push it to or maybe final 80 seconds. They push it to a double-digit lead. And then, you know, Kansas, I think, cut it to six, but they end up winning. Kansas State does by seven. This is a team that's now won one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of its past eight games. Again, 13-3 and three with Dean Wade. I think they are a legitimate challenger um, with Iowa State, Kansas, Baylor, anybody else uh, to win the Big 12. And perhaps, this wouldn't shock me, um, I could see them winning it outright. It's it's certainly possible. Um, be interesting to see what we get over the next week and a half or so with K-State and how things develop. Uh, GP, real quick, let me just go around the horn. Um, there were a ton of relevant teams, but not great games on Tuesday night. Conzo Martin returned to Tennessee as Missouri's coach. Tennessee, you know, we talk about these teams that are bump, you know, bumpy, lost here, lost there. A GP is uh, approaching 50 straight days that he has had the Vols at number one in his top 25 and one rankings. Um, it was validated when he put them there on day number one, but um, in the history of him doing the top 25 and one daily, I think we're on season three, there have been few instances that have, uh, have continually uh, looked better than him being in on the Vols before anyone else, and they're still number one. Syracuse dropped a brutal home game to Florida State, which is almost as en enigmatic as any team. I don't get cues whatsoever, and yet I still think they're going to make their way into the tournament and find their way into the Sweet 16, but uh, I refuse to try and get any grasp on them. NC State rebounded by scoring 74 more points than it did over the weekend. The problem is it let North Carolina drop 113. We mentioned how Marcus Howard can't seem to play well against St. John's. The exact opposite is true. Luke May always roasts the in-state Wolfpack. He had another huge night. And then Kentucky had no issues with Devin Downey's alma mater. They win 76-48. They are a top-five team in the rankings. Uh, they're top-five in the net as well. They continue to get the job done there. So shout to Kentucky for, for uh, once again looking strong. And I have just two more notes here. CBS Sports Network had Loyola Chicago. GP obviously saw all of that game. Loyola got the win. Um, meanwhile, Illinois State dropped a game home to Valpo. Things are kind of breaking right for Loyola to be the best team in that league and get back to the tournament. We'll wait and see. It's not going to be anything near and at large or anything. It's not as good of a team this season as it was last season, but that was a big win because the Missouri Valley is a freaking quagmire. And then I want to give a shout because, frankly, who knows when we're going to talk about this team again. And we're, we got through this podcast very quickly. Utah State got a win at Fresno State. The Mountain West is terrible this season, but if Nevada doesn't lose the rest of the way, and then Utah State can basically beat everyone except them, it might have an outside shot at being an at-large team. The Mountain West is having the worst season it's ever had as a conference. It's 13th in the league ratings, and uh, it's it's kind of weird and aberrational to see that uh, all come to be. But I was looking at a bunch of that stuff today because in Wednesday's court report, I'll have an interview with the selection chair, Bernard Muir. He's the Stanford athletic director. I talked to him about some just, you know, small conferences, mid-major teams, and stuff like that so keep an eye on that he's obviously talking in advance of the of the big reveal on uh, on saturday with the top 16 but anyway that's a quick tour around the sport on what is an abbreviated podcast gp i don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that stuff but it was a weird night because we didn't have a ton of games but a lot of ranked relevant teams played and most of them were able to win with somewhat uh, relative ease 
Yeah, and if all you do is wake up on Wednesday and look at box scores, you're going to see that Duke won 80-55, just completely overwhelmed Boston College inside Cameron Indoor. What you might not see is that Duke was trailing at the half, 30-28. They outscored BC uh, 52-25 in the final 20 minutes, and Cam Reddish scored a game-high 24 points. Um, You know, RJ was good, and I think he had 20 Zion had like 16 points, 17 rebounds, but Cam Reddish had a game-high 24 points, and this is the first time all season that somebody other than Zion Williamson or R.J. Barrett was the outright leading scorer for Duke. It became on Tuesday night, and there was also a big block in the first half, Jack White rim protector on Kai Bowman, if you haven't checked that out yet. Just go to Twitter, probably search Kai Bowman, Jack White, Jack, hashtag Jack White Rim Protector. Um, that was a nice uh, play that got the Cameron Crazies uh, going. You're exactly right about Tennessee. Very proud of myself for being ahead of the curve on them. And I, I really don't think they're going to lose or even be pushed before they go to Lexington on February 16th. And that is shaping up to be a monster of a game. I mean, I don't know. Um, where those schools will be ranked by the time we get there. But I do think that they probably will be both top five teams. And it'll be the last time this this season, regular season at least, and one of the few times that Tennessee is probably going to be an underdog. And how often do you see that? Not often. <laughs> not often at all. I'll actually be at that game uh, as as well. I'm hoping that they don't lose either of them before because you're right, that can be a, a total – monster of a game and uh you know kentucky's home crowd will be as up for that as they have been for pretty much anything louisville game included in the past few years so that's one to keep an eye on uh but we got to get there first but yeah tennessee just it you know it had the the close one against vanderbilt and grant williams goes for 43 makes like 23 free throws and all that but with rare exception you know just in the broad view tennessee has just continually gotten it's just kicking so many teams asses it's uh it's really great to watch and it's it's interesting sometimes to hear like input from college basketball fans but but those who aren't like into it every day or or you know just like all in uh you know one of my family members was just saying like you know tennessee's good enough like they're good enough to win the national title they're that good and i was like oh no absolutely because frankly if you follow college basketball here or there and you know if you happen to be a listener just tuning in now that football's over i don't know how many people like can't pay attention to one sport and the other but that apparently is a thing uh, and you're just not used to tennessee being this good and you're kind of inherently skeptical don't be man they are just full-grown men and they've been proving it over and over and over again it's getting harder for me even if they drop the game at kentucky and whatever like they lose two more games or three more games it's going to be hard for me to pick against them in the tournament knowing all the while that anyone can get knocked out it's just the way they play and how steady they are um i really really like what they've become and i thought they'd be good they're just they've been even more impressive than i expected and even i think most people expected even if you thought tennessee was going to be like top five top ten quality if you've really watched them play throughout the season uh very few flaws and they this is a cliche but it absolutely applies to them like they just do not beat themselves it does not happen at all and uh love watching them play just you know we got to wait now for the Kentucky game because that's really the next test they're going to face I don't think Tennessee has the best chance to win the national championship because I do think there are teams that just have a higher ceiling and and Duke being the most obvious because of the the NBA talent at the top of the roster but I will say this if you told me I could pick one team, only one team, um, that I was certain is not going to lose 
in the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament. In other words, what's the safest team in the country to get to the Sweet 16? I think it's I think it's Tennessee, and it's for exactly the reason you pointed out. They're not going to beat themselves, and and you know I do think that they have a chance to win the national championship because when you play full strength Kansas to overtime and beat Gonzaga on a neutral court, the same Gonzaga team that beat Duke on a neutral court, like when all of that stuff I just said is true, you by definition are good enough to win a national championship. But I also think they're 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 incredibly a safe pick. Like, the, the, the lone losses, the overtime loss to Kansas, they are the only team in the country that hasn't lost a game in regulation this season. And they don't just beat mediocre teams and bad teams and even good teams. They beat their brains in, usually by double digits. I mean, they have been overwhelming for the competition um, with few exceptions this year, whereas, like, Duke can beat you by 50. And if you're Kentucky, they can beat you by 34. But I will tell you, there is a, an Achilles with Duke, and it showed up again on Tuesday night. Now, it wasn't a big deal because they ended up winning 80-55, but Duke was one of 15 from three-point range in, in the first half. And if you look at the season statistics uh, for the Blue Devils, that is the one thing, maybe not the one thing they don't do well, but it is the biggest thing and most obvious thing that they don't do well. They're shooting 30.8% from three-point range uh, on the season that ranks 309th in the country so let me be clear I don't think Duke's losing in the opening round or even the round of 32 but Duke is the type of team that could go out there and and throw up a three of 27 from three-point range and find themselves in a real game against an eight seed assuming that the Blue Devils are a, a one seed whereas I just don't think Tennessee has that kind of vulnerability I, I think Duke has Duke at its best is better than Tennessee at its best, but I think Duke is more likely to throw up one of these weird 40-minute games where they can't make a shot. Now, and let me acknowledge, they have R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson, who might be the two best players in the sport at getting to the rim. That's why they're awesome, despite their three-point shooting. But their inability to consistently make shots, I do think is something that should not get completely overlooked. I agree. I wrote about this about two, maybe three weeks ago with Duke's three-point shooting. It's not got, It's not – it's gotten worse since I wrote about it. And uh, from a foul shooting perspective, they're also bad. They rank 274th nationally. Duke has not been this bad from three-point range and free-throw shooting since the 90s. I think from the foul line, it's been since – no, I think from the three-point line, it's been since the year they didn't make it in 94-95. Um, so it, it is something that is lingering, and I don't think it's something that it can correct and it can change. I – I would you say Tennessee for your like strongest bet to to get through the second weekend? I would go Virginia. I still think Virginia is a better team than Tennessee. Woo -hoo, woo -hoo, I, know, woo. I know, I know. You better be careful with them. <laughs> I know, I know. You, I know. you saw what happened last time, right? I know, I know, I know, I I, I know. I, I but I'm 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 in as long as they're fully healthy. Ty Jerome, by the way, uh, has a back issue. It would be ironic if Virginia, in its home game against Duke, did not have its starting point guard when Duke, in its home game against Virginia, didn't have his. But we'll have to wait, and hopefully, we'll have an update on that as we get closer and in closing by the way speaking of Virginia I will be in Charlottesville for Duke at Virginia this weekend because of schedules if you've enjoyed the fact that
that you woke up and had an eye on College Basketball Podcast Wednesday edition waiting for you. Uh, you will have the same on Friday because Parrish and I both need to record our Friday podcast on Thursday night due to travel and other schedule things. So we will preview what is clearly the biggest game of the weekend, Duke at Virginia. But as we mentioned, Nova at Marquette. Um, maybe get into a little bit of what uh, the selection committee chair told me and or other comments that may come out. He's going to have a conference call with the media on Wednesday. I've got some interesting stuff on the net and the RPI and Wednesday's court report. Be sure to check that out, at, check that out as well. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's going to be, a, I think, a pretty awesome weekend for college hoops. We'll get to all of that on the Friday episode, but just a heads up that uh, we're going to rough it late night again. Maybe not as late on Thursday, but uh, your weekend preview will certainly be ready for you when you wake up on Friday morning. Yeah, I fly home from New York on Thursday and then leave for Reno, Nevada on Friday morning. I'm Norlander's going to be at Duke, Virginia, and I'm going to be at New Mexico, Nevada in Reno uh, with Nevada trying to avenge that the probably the weirdest result of this <laughs> college basketball season when they just got hammered yeah. at New Mexico. I'll be handling sideline duty for CBS Sports Network. Norlander, do you have any idea how long it takes to get from Memphis to Reno, Nevada. <laughs> I'm going to say, this is a guess. I'm going to guess route and time. So I'll say that you're flying out of Memphis and then you're going to Atlanta, flying to Vegas, and then flying to Reno. And I'm going to say that uh, all told, leave your house, out your house door, to your hotel. Maybe you haven't calculated that. But I'm going to say that that is a solid 14-hour day. You're actually pretty close. I'm going Memphis to Atlanta layover atlanta to salt lake city layover salt lake city to reno flight leaves memphis at 7 a.m central get to reno around 5 p.m pacific so i'm that's 7 p.m yeah. central so leave my house probably 5 30 central get to my hotel in reno let's say 8 30 central we're looking at what, 12, 13, 14, mm -hmm. 14, 15 hours? It's a long day. I got a long Friday ahead I'm of me. I'm so happy we're doing the podcast before you got to. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, there's no scenario. Like, it, it actually sucks because I'm going to, you know, I've obviously been gone since early Monday morning. That's my schedule every week. But then I get home Thursday night. I won't get home till after radio till like 6.30. And then rather than, like, you know, love my children and my wife, I've got to record a podcast. And then I got to get up at 5 o'clock the next morning, fly to Reno, and then I go Reno on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then immediately back to New York. And then I'm back in New York for like 11 straight days. I'm not even going home um, in between. I'm not going home from New York for like 11 straight days. How about this? From to right now at this moment, I shouldn't say this, but from right now to this moment, um, I like I'm going to be home one night through middle of like, like, February 23rd or something. It's like crazy. So, um, you know, our podcast schedule will be a little unusual, but the one thing you need to know is that we will be recording on Thursday night. So you can catch the next episode on Thursday night or on your commute into work or whatever it is you do for a living or just do in general on Friday morning. Last thing before we get out of here. Mm -hmm. um, there is no game on Wednesday night between two top 25 teams. 
there is no game on Thursday night between two top 25 game, uh, teams. So whatever happens that's super interesting, we'll get into it on Thursday night's podcast. But the one game I did want to point out, because I think it deserves some attention because it's, it's going to be uh, spectacular, is that on Thursday night at 7 o'clock Eastern on ESPN Plus, if you have that, um, you get Wofford at East Tennessee State. And Wofford's 19-4 and four right now. East Tennessee State, 19-5. and five. Wofford is 11-0 um, uh, in the Southern Conference. East Tennessee State, 9-2 and two in the Southern Conference. These are arguably the two best teams in the league, depending on uh, what you maybe think of Furman or, or UNC Greensboro. Yeah. But according to Ken Palm, these are the two best teams in the league, both top 60. Wofford's 31st at Kempom. I know I don't have to tell you. Norman. What's their net ranking, Parrish? I think it's like 26. I looked it up tonight. Yeah, that's right. That's our. We got a daily uh, podcast update on the Wofford net ranking. Sounds good. Okay, cool, yes. cool, cool. It's cool. a great quadrant one win if you beat them at Wofford in beautiful Spartanburg. It's but a also quadrant one win if you beat them on your home floor. They are a yeah. quad one win yeah, regardless was, of venue. Say that exactly. I was just setting it up for full context. <laughs> quadrant one win if you beat them in beautiful Spartanburg. Quadrant one win if you beat them on a neutral. Quadrant one win if they come to your place. If you dare invite them to your place, the Terriers, um, you know they'll, 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 you know it's a quadrant one win there. So East Tennessee State's got a chance to get a, a quadrant one. I don't think there's any scenario where ETSU um, will be in play for an at-large bid, even if ETSU might be one of the best candidates for in terms of just quality of basketball team for an at-large bid. But I do think, and we will get into this um, as the weeks uh, unfold, hashtag two-bid Southern Conference, uh, I think there's a scenario where this Wofford team, especially if it wins out, and that would include winning in Johnson City on Thursday night, there's a, a very realistic scenario where the Southern could be a two-bid league. For instance, Wofford plays anybody in the title game, Furman, ETSU, Greensboro, whatever, um, loses that, then that other team gets the automatic bid, and then Wofford gets thrown into the at-large pool, and they've got a good at-large resume. I, I really do think the Southern mm -hmm. Conference can be a two-bid league. And if you want to see the two best teams in the league, they'll be playing each other on Thursday night. I'll, you know, I'll never uh, object to uh, to highlighting uh, teams that are you know of the of the mid major, small major variety. And Wofford has helped; it's been helped by the net this year. It's it's uh, entering into uh, Tuesday night. It was ranked 28th. If uh, if we were going off the RPI, it was 13, 14 spots lower than normal. And I do believe that having an abundance of those kinds of teams in the top 40 or so of the net rankings is going to accelerate the conversation to where those teams will be on the radar. Uh, even teams just outside of it. By the way, Liberty got a, a close shave win, and Liberty is a top 50 team in the net. So there are a couple teams, um, even like Buffalo, I think, has slack. Uh, you know, to do that. And if Furman, which is in the same conference, as you mentioned, as Wofford, they got a, they've got a rematch. They have to win that game. But Furman still, the Loyola win on the road is, is aging well. The Villanova win is aging incredibly well. It has a ton of road wins. If Furman only loses one more time the rest of the season, now that's going to be a tough-ass parish. But if it only loses one more time, I even think that, like, let's say Furman doesn't lose again until the title game against Wofford. Furman will absolutely have an at-large case. Things have to break the right way. And if they do, rest assured, we're going to be all over it on the podcast because I think it's going to turn into quite the interesting year for bids because you've got some real legitimate 
mid-major type teams that can have cases as long as they don't slip up because it's a down year for the Pac-12, because the Mountain West has never been worse, because the A-10 is lagging behind the Ivy League and the MAC in conference standings. So these leagues that are normally getting two, three, even four bids in a lot of years, they're not going to provide them this year. So is it going to go to the middle slash bottom of the Big Ten and the ACC and the Big 12? Are they going to gobble up everything, or are we going to see a team slip up here and there, and you're going to have the opportunity for those mid-majors to pounce in We'll wait and see. We need another couple of weeks before we can really evaluate those resumes. But it starts with that game on Thursday night. A huge one. East Tennessee State's good. SoCon is fairly loaded for what it is in normal seasons. Um, Wofford can afford to lose it, but, man, if it wins it, it just it makes their resume even that much better. And more importantly, Parrish, it makes me look that much better. I'm thinking about bringing back your little rant against me from, like, the third <laughs> episode of the season and just, like, starting the podcast with that. And then we can kind of go from there, the mea culpa and all of it. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Terry has still got work to do. You know, I am almost never somebody who speaks in absolutes. Like, I always sort of measure my comments and I leave myself wiggle room. The most adamant I've been about almost anything this entire season is that you were insane to think that the win at Wofford was going to be a quadrant one win. And now, like, it's going to be so easily a Quadrant One win. Like, it's going to be a great Quadrant One win. <laughs> I could not have been more dumb about that. Uh, it's okay. It's better podcast entertainment. Okay, by the way, we're insane. Let's get off this thing and go to bed. Oh, Todd, sleepy AF. Man, I'm sleepy AF. All right, man. Well, let's, let's wrap it up, and I'll talk to you in, like, two days. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry BMF Fatigo. He's a legend. Shouts to Larnell. And remember... You can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. So easy to do. It takes less than a minute. Then what we're going to ask is that you rate it favorably. Five stars, nice comments. It really does make a difference. Like every time I click on all the stuff over at iTunes, it, it warms my heart when I see we've got the most listened to college basketball podcast in the world. When I see that the Ion College Basketball latest episode is is one of the is either the top listened to most recent uh, college sports podcast or you know, certainly in the top two or top three. Basically, every new episode shoots to the uh, the top two at the very least very, very quickly. And that is a testament to, I mean, mostly Norland and I, but also you guys, because we couldn't do it without you guys. So please keep doing what you're doing. If you haven't done it yet, uh, knock that out for me. I'll owe you forever. And either way, whether you're helping us out with a subscription and a nice comment and five stars or not, we're going to be here for you on Thursday night. Till then, take care.